This is a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. When you come uh, particularly to Paul's letters in the New Testament, you, you get a sense that Paul had a different relationship with each community. Some are more difficult than others. So uh, Galatia kind of had accused him of having just brought half the gospel. You had Corinth who, who were doubting his motive uh, and finding him unimpressive. But it, when it comes to Philippi, you just get this sense that Paul had an easier relationship with them. Like, they got each other. At one point in, in the letter, Paul says about the Philippians that um, he longs for them with the affection of Jesus Christ. And, and the word affection is this uh, gut-moving love. You know, when you love someone so powerfully, you feel it in your stomach. Uh, his love for the Philippians was kind of natural and flowed out of their deep sense of connection because the Philippians cared about Paul like no other church. So the reason they, the, the, the letter is written in the first place is Paul is in a Roman jail um, where there's no provision of food or goods and the church in Philippi have sent Epaphroditus, one of their own, to bring supplies for Paul. They just, they just loved him and they wanted to find out about the progress of the good news in Rome. Um, Paul says in chapter 4, no one, no one partnered with me in giving and receiving like you guys in Macedonia. They supported Paul in his missionary journeys. Uh, in chapter 2, you find out that he, Philippians prayed for Paul like no other community. The, the relationship was kind of easy. They had this beautiful partnership in the gospel. Uh, and they were a church that faced their fair uh, slab of challenges. So as you read the letter, you find out there were pressures just from living in the city in which they lived. Uh, they lived in a place called Philippi, which was on the outskirts of the Roman Empire. Uh, a whole lot of ex-Roman soldiers, veterans of the centurions, were actually given land around Philippi so that they would live and serve as a colony of Rome and their lord was Caesar. Like, they were a proud Roman city. But here you had this little community of followers of Jesus within this city, and they dared to name someone else as their lord and saviour, which was Jesus Christ. And they were prepared to suffer for that reality, even when it cost them dearly. And then they had some other troubles from uh, Jewish believers that came in and said, well, you kind of got half the gospel. Like, if you really want to be followers of Jesus and belong to the people of God, your men need to be circumcised. You know, so there was that kind of pressure from outsiders. But still, uh, in their city, they, they faithfully remained followers of Jesus. Paul talked about them shining like stars in the place that they were. They were, they were determined to be the people of God in that place. Um, as I come and stand before you, um, I've had a pretty long association with Narara Valley Baptist Church, mainly in the background. So I've been part of training teams for a long time, but I've always had a bit of a crush on Narara Valley Baptist Church. And this is me looking from the outside, so I know there's more to you than this, but you've just always struck me 
as a church with a big kingdom vision that hasn't been about making a name for yourself. Um, you've always par- partnered with, our, uh, with Moana and Vili with genuine relationship, prayer, and generosity. Uh, you've sent your own people to go and be with them, and I can't tell you how much just your presence lifts them up. But I, I know of your heart for First Nations people. I know that you plant churches. I know that you really care about the gospel in your own community. And it seems to me you're a bit like Philippi. You just have, you have this sense that you're part of God's big movement, that it's not just about you. You want to be faithful here, more than faithful. You want to lift up Jesus right where you are. But this, there's this sense that you're part of this movement that's much bigger than yourself. So could I just affirm you in that this morning? I know that takes hard work and struggle and prayer and budgeting and all of that. So from inside, it probably feels messy sometimes, as it always does in church life. But it seems like we experience you from Baptist Mission Australia's point as a great partner in the gospel. Now, for all of Philippi's strength, though, when you step back and really listen to the letter, so listening to the letters of Paul, it's, it's like someone once described it as you're, you're, someone's on the phone and you can hear only one side of the conversation. You don't get to hear all the details of the other end of the phone line. But as you just kind of scan the letter, you do find out that there's, there's a few chinks in the armour of Philippi. There's a few things that they're struggling with. Uh, You see it in chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. These two words turn up, selfish ambition and rivalry. Uh, In chapter 2, verse 1 and 3, it's selfish ambition and vain conceit. In chapter 4, you find out there's a bit of grumbling and complaining. And then in chapter 4, verse uh, 2, you read these words about um, perhaps a deeper problem that's existing in the life of the church. Uh, it says, I plead with you, Eudia and Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, my true p- companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. So there's just this kind of little bit of trouble in the church. And it's related to selfish ambition and vain conceit. Now, selfish ambition is, is this thing that... I guess it wants me to be lifted up at the expense of somebody else, right? It's, it's a bit seizing and grasping and competitive. And there's this weird thing about being a human being is that we feel more important if we're more important than someone else. I don't know. if We feel more significant if we're treated as more significant to someone else. You know, it's that idea of when you're in a line... I don't know, has anyone been in a line and then you, you get that VIP treatment when someone comes and says, oh, sir, you can go ahead of everyone else. And then you skate by. And how enjoyable is it just to walk past all those other people, right? Oh, is that just me? <laughs> but selfish ambition kind of does that. Now, in, in churches, right, when we know we're not supposed to be selfish and full of ambition. So this isn't talking about, you know, the person that turns up in the, in a, to church in a Lamborghini with greased back hair, right? And, you know, walks down to the front seat and the, the audience pass. Like, we're not, we know we shouldn't be that overtly, selfishly ambitious. 
But what we do as Christians is we dress it up in really Christian ways. Like, see, um, the problem here is Yudia and Sintich, they're actually Paul's co-workers in the Lord. These are really genuine followers of Jesus. And I reckon we can expect that of all the people in this particular church. It's not that they weren't really wanting to follow Jesus, but somewhere at some point, they were doing the right things on the outside, right? They, they, but underneath, they were doing it for their own significance and importance. And this is a trap for any human sitting in this building, particularly for leaders. Like if you're a pastor, a deacon, an elder, a worship leader, any, a youth leader, we, we start out to serve Jesus, you know, but somewhere at some point, it becomes about us. Uh, and, and it shows up in funny ways. So when I lift up the bonnet of my life and look for this, it shows up as resentment. I don't know, if, like when I start to resent that no one's noticing me or thanking me for what I'm doing, or, or it shows up when I'm too busy all the time. So in Christian circles, even though it's never mentioned in the Bible as a virtue, if I can come across to you and you ask me how I am, I go, oh, I'm busy, I'm too busy for you. Like, I can't be present for you. I'm so important. My kids have this song they showed me, and it's, it's called, Don't You Know How Busy and Important I Am? <laughs> you know, and sometimes we just have that sign up on our lives. But what is it for you? How do you dress this up? Do you look under the bonnet of your life and just say, why am I in the ministry that I am? Like, why am I feeling the way I'm feeling? Um, what, what, am, what am I doing here with my, my life? You know, what... Like, am I still cultivating secrecy? Like, do I still pray alone? Is it enough to please Jesus? Do I, if I'm a worship leader, do I still sing to God when I'm on my own? When I give, does someone always have to know? Um, Because sometimes we just lose sight of whom and who we're doing the thing we're doing for. So selfish ambition can tear apart a community. Now, it can even be trickier in a, in a mission setting because mission, when you go cross-culturally to somewhere else where you're a foreigner, um, it can both lift your ego up and then devastate you in the very next minute, right? So just to give you a little petty example, so I was, I was in a market in Vietnam and this woman came up to me and she said, you're so handsome, you know. Now, at this moment, I was standing in this market in Vietnam, and I'm thinking, man, Vietnam's a great place. This is a place where ginger pale people can be known as handsome, you know. Maybe I should move to Vietnam. Maybe God is calling me to Vietnam, because in Vietnam, I'm significant. But as I was starting to think about that, the, the rest of the sentence unfolded. It was, you're so handsome. She hit me on the tummy and said, just like fat Buddha. <laughs> <laughs> you're so handsome, just like fat Buddha. Now, now I'm starting to be devastated. So I'm starting to think, I really have been eating a lot of Vietnamese food here. I'm starting to put on the kgs. I'm getting older, I'm falling apart, I'm not who I used to be, and the self-loathing kicks in, right? So then I think about that, and then, and then I bring this cultural lens. So, 
So I, I start to think about how in Vietnam, actually, because I'm very pale, it means, and I haven't got a six-pack, let's just put it like that, it means that I, I'm, I'm not a labourer, like I'm not working out in the sun all the time, that the landscape isn't kind of sculpting me, which means I'd probably have some money, so I'm probably quite wealthy. And um, one of my Vietnamese friends probably said, well, that being overweight actually means you're someone who can provide, right? So now I've looked through the cultural lens and I'm thinking, oh, I'm not only handsome, but I'm a good provider. Or, or simply, she loves me just because I've got money. You know, I'm, I'm trying to think through all those dynamics. And then my Vietnamese friend just said to me, or, or maybe this is what happened. In Vietnam, we have this thing called a joke. And she was just making a joke. <laughs> Why, why, why overinvest in the poles, right? In the, the devast, you know, the overinvesting in what you bring because of your cultural background, or or overinvesting in your cultural failure. Does this make sense? What what we need to do is invest in the grace of God. That's where our significance comes from. See. The other way of doing these crazy dances where we seek approval in all kinds of things outside the gospel is actually humility. Uh, John Dixon has written this brilliant book called Humilitas uh, about the subject of humility, and he defines humility not as self-hatred or self-abasement, but humility is the noble choice to forego your status, to deploy your resources and use your influence for the good of others before yourself. Or he puts it more simply, he says, the willingness to hold power in the service of others. In the other words, like, humility is from a height and then lowering yourself. And that's the genius of Philippians chapter 1, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, is it exactly what Paul says to us when he says these beautiful words. He says, um, he says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from love, if any common sharing in spirit, if any tenderness or any compassion. So I don't know if you notice the ifs there. The ifs are not so much a conditional. If, he's not saying if these are true of you. He's, he's saying them presuppositionally, that if you're a Christian, all these things are true for you. And, and many commentators think that this is actually a reference to the Trinity. Like, if you read carefully, if there's any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from love, if any sharing in the Spirit, it reminds us of other parts of the Bible, like uh, 1 Corinthians thir- 2 Corinthians 13, which says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. In other words, like, here Paul says that if you're a Christian, you stand under a fire hydrant of God's love for you in Christ Jesus. You know, in God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that great circle of holy love is a love that's given to believers through Jesus Christ that's, that's overwhelming. He says you've received great hope and comfort from the Lord Jesus. You've received great love from God the Father. And you've received the gift of the Holy Spirit that kind of holds you together and lets you experience in your, act, your life all the things that are yours 
from God the Father, through God the Son. All of that is yours. You are significant. Your name is known. You are loved. You are valued. All of these things are your in the gospel, right? So we no longer need to fight for these things. We no longer need to be precious. We can give all status away because everything is already ours in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to use these two beautiful words, if any tenderness or any compassion. Tenderness is a a word used for Jesus, and it's that word used again about that gut-moving love. You know, where he sees a crowd and he's overwhelmed with compassion, where he sees a leper and he reaches out to touch him, when he sees two blind men on the side of the road and he he touches their eyes. Uh, The word for... uh, Tenderness or compassion, uh, the compassion word is spoken of as God the Father, and it's that old phrase, the bowels of mercy, like God's love that comforts us. See, again, it's saying all of these things, all of these things are are yours in Christ. You have this incredibly high position and gift from God, and now he says, be willing to lower yourself. Be willing to lower yourself. He says, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Paul says here, because you've experienced all of that, He's not saying, I want you to agree with each other all the time. He's just saying he wants that reality of God's grace and all that he has done for you to start affecting the way you think, to starting to affect the way you love, um, to bring you together as, as one people. And that begins to make shape your decisions as you gather together. This is about before coming into a meeting with or a mission trip, or ministry team, knowing that the reason you're in that room, that the reason you have something important to contribute is not primarily because of your competency, uh, because you're a leader in the business world. Uh, it's, it's, it's none of that. It's because of what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. Uh, when we walk into that room, that spirit of Christ is to shape and, and cause us to pause and make room for other people and listen. That's what this love does. And he goes on to talk about how we're to consider others better than ourselves. It's, this is not about estimation. This is not pretending that people are, are better than you. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's about just caring about them more. It's that freedom to be present with another person. You know, um, Tim Keller wrote this incredible little book called The Art of Self-Forgetfulness. And he was reflecting on some of the writings of C.S. Lewis and humility. And he said this, he said, If we're to truly meet a humble person, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not always be telling us that they were a nobody, because a person who keeps saying that they are a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. 
Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Because I'm loved, I don't need to suck love out of this conversation. Because I'm significant, I don't need to get my significance by impressing this person. I can just be there for them and encounter them. Have one ear to God and his spirit and one ear to them. You know, this old, old Catholic priest called Henri Nouwen said, um, hospitality is about making room inside yourself for others. That's what humility does. There's space in you at your table for another human being. And this is so key for a mission trip. I, t- I talk about mission trips as like squeezing the orange. You know when you squeeze something, what's on the inside comes out. Like juice comes out, right? Uh, when we put people into another culture, uh, you've got people with the Great Commission, but the vocabulary of a toddler, right? <laughs> that can make you feel like frustrated and small. Uh, we put you in really hot places. You know how the fruit of the Spirit sometimes we think is only operative between sort of 17 degrees Celsius and 29 degrees Celsius once we get outside of that window. It just, just kind of goes, right? Or we can think toilets are beneath us or a, a particular meals. Like what, what are we like as humans when some of those basic structures that make us feel comfortable and competent are taken away? Because I think what's revealed there isn't it just a momentary lapse. I think that's what's really there. Like, who are we when we're made to feel uncomfortable? You know, um, I've, I've heard of missionaries needing to be sent home, you know, just because they refuse to eat local food. Because that food isn't just food. Like, food for us is often just a preference, isn't it? I like Thai. I don't like... Vietnamese, but if you go to a little village, someone in, in relative poverty brings you a meal, they're not giving you meal, they're giving you love, right? They, they're offering you their love. And we, if we say no, uh, and continually, if, if we're not afraid to move towards somebody and open ourselves up to them, then why are we, why are we there? Why are we there? Jesus, uh, Paul, Paul points to another way. He says, I want you to think another way. He says this, in your, in your relationships with, with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So this is what Jesus was thinking. He says, who being in very nature God. So he was uh, in, the, in the form of God in Greek, it says. He was God, Jesus, God incarnate. It says he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So being God for him wasn't about acquiring stuff. It wasn't about seizing and taking. You know how most leaders or many leaders see power as a way of getting stuff? Like an influencer. You know, you become an influencer so you can endorse products and get stuff, right? So God took the opposite way. It says he did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. It's literally, uh, Jesus didn't pour his divinity out. He poured himself 
out. That's how likeness with God expressed itself in the self-giving love of Jesus. And the way he did with that was taking the role of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of a man. So here we have Jesus, who is God revealed in human form. He's like humans, except he's without sin. But he's prepared to, to connect with sinners. He's prepared to identify with sinners. Verse 8 says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. If you want to know what greatness looks like, what true power looks like, then look at the one whose coronation or whose lifting up was on a cross, whose crown was made of thorns, you know, he was ironically declared king in many languages, in Greek, Aramaic, and Latin, right? And most people just mocked him on the day he was crucified. But there was a Roman centurion who saw all of this. He saw the king declared ironically in his language. And he saw the beauty of Jesus. And he said, surely this man is the son of God, Right? This man crucified, hanging on a cross, his greatness, his greatness. Then we read on that God sees this, this expression of God-likeness in the person of Jesus. And what happens next is not about reward, it's about vindication. It's God saying, yes, this is what I am like. It says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As Jesus descends into greatness, as he reveals what God is like in his suffering servant nature, we find out that this is the Lord of the universe. This is the Lord of Thailand. This is the Lord of Australia. This is the Lord of Mongolia. This is the king that all people need to, to know. And at one day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that this Jesus is Lord. Therefore, it becomes our task and mission to proclaim with our mouth what Jesus is like but also to embody what he's like with our humility and servant-heartedness. This means we go to people where they are in mission. You know, our preferences don't matter as much anymore. We, we like what we like. The music we like, we, we like it. We, the chairs we sit on at church, the styles, you know. But they're all just preferences. And see, Paul was prepared to give them all away for the sake of the gospel. This was his mindset. He said this, I am free and belong to no one. I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one. Though myself, I am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one um, not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that all, by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I might share in its blessings. 
The way of mission in any culture is the way of humility, of being like the Jesus that we proclaim. It's what we're meant to do inside our teams, inside our Christian communities. But as we do that, we declare what Jesus is like to our world. Can I ask you to follow that king? Can I ask you to learn to laugh at yourself? To look under the bonnet of your life and check your motives? Why am I doing what I'm doing? And then recenter, recenter and come back to this man, this crucified king, and say, I can let it go because you're far too important. You are the substance, not my opinion. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that in him, God, Father, you are most accurately and beautifully depicted. That in him we know what you are like. And we thank you that you are the great self-giving God. Help us follow you in mission. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. To continue the conversation, we invite you to join us Sundays at 9.30am and 5pm or on our website at www.nvbc.info.